Is the new Apple Music a mess? And the new marketing muscle of your favorite movie stars. This is episode 21 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I am Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, is the new Apple Music a mess? We're talking about Apple Music? <laughs> Apple Music. This would be the new product from Apple, the new service from Apple. We have a, an article from Mashable, and that was the title of the article. Apple Music is a major mess, and it won't beat Spotify, was the title of the article. Let me touch on a couple things here, then I want to hear but, what you but think. Mark, but, but Mark, let ahead. me ask you. Apple Music? I mean, maybe this podcast should be called... Uh, Old media unplugged. Hasn't everyone already talked about this thing? <laughs> I, but you know what? I've got it. I was thinking about it. We can spin our podcast with like a new value proposition. Okay. Like media unplugged. Where to go for media news and insights when you're too busy working to keep up with it in real time. Well, that's right. That? I mean, don't you think there's too much keeping up with it in real? Isn't that the problem that there's too much it, keeping up with it in real time? It's nothing but knee-jerk analysis. It's important to let let all of that stuff just kind of wash over you. Then come here and we'll give you the real deal. That's right. Think of this as like Newsweek. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I didn't mean to interrupt, by the way. Well, yes, I did. <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, yes, it's been a week. Uh, Apple Music's been out there for a while, and uh, the speculation continues about its its pros and cons, its virtues and lack thereof. This particular piece I thought was interesting uh, because its proposition is that this thing is a major mess. Here's um, some of the points that are made in this article, um, and I love this. Uh, the author, whose name is Chris Taylor. And by the way, isn't it always interesting? These authors are nobody you've ever heard of. It's just another guy with another opinion. But it's a name you think you've heard before, like Chris <laughs> Taylor. That sounds familiar, you know? <laughs> um, so here's one of his points. This doesn't feel like Apple at all. Rather, it feels like something designed by committee, a committee of strong egos. Oh. <laughs> and like Apple has been an organization of little egos. Little egos, <laughs> not of committees. That's right. I don't think that's true. This was strange. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I will say, did you actually see the, um, the, the keynote, the Apple keynote? I watched the introduction of it, and I was not impressed. I don't know. Were you? I was not impressed at all. In fact, when it got to Apple Music, it went, uh, it went very much downhill. They brought out Jimmy Iovine, who looks like, you know, he's never seen a cue card he can read from. And they brought out Drake, who seemed to be vamping pointlessly. And the whole presentation on Apple Music was built on, you know, Apple has this, what I like to call the tyranny of three things. Everything about its announcement has three parts. If you remember back to Jobs' original iPhone pitch, the iPhone is three things. A telephone, a state-of-the-art internet communications device, and an iPod. Three things. So this tyranny of three things was laid out here as well. Apple Music is basically three things. It's a, it's a version of Spotify. It's a live streaming worldwide radio station called Beats One. And it's a service called Connect, designed to connect people to uh, artists. So those are the three things. But the take um, of Mr. <laughs> Taylor was that this was a train wreck. Um, he didn't like really any aspect of this. He thought the the Spotify version was uh, undifferentiated. He thought the Connect was uh, unnecessary, and he didn't get the radio station thing at all. <laughs> well, what was your take, Tom? I haven't seen it. Right, it's not it's not available till the end end of the month, right. I guess. But so they call it all the ways you love music 
all in one place. Yes. Um, now I did look at the Apple Music TV ad. Yes. And that was pretty. That was pretty cool. That was classic Apple, right? Which was sell the feeling, the experience, not the product. But, and this is a pretty big but. This is like a Kim Kardashian size but. So <laughs> what? <laughs> no, when it comes to this music platform, so what? So this ad is all about music. And the fact that people are turned on by music. Mm -hmm. See, unlike the iPhone and the iPad ads, there's nothing evocative about the Apple experience. Mm -hmm. And for a brand, I mean, that's, that's a bit disconcerting, at least, at least in my mind. It's funny you say that because I had the very same thought. In fact, as I watched that ad, I thought, wow, this is the greatest ad ever for the category of streaming music. Exactly. That this this will make me rush to my Spotify service all the faster. In fact, you could take out the Apple ad if, or the Apple logo if there is one and replace it with a Spotify or a Pandora logo, and I don't think it would change the impact of the spot at all, would it? No, I'm with you. Listen, a brand is nothing more than a little story in our heads, and it's, and it's based on the signals we receive through our perceptions, our experiences. Mm -hmm. Apple is sending some very different signals today than it did when Steve Jobs was running the company. I mean, they're saying we're a fashion and entertainment brand. Right. Not a change the world empowering technology brand. Now, the stories in people's heads take a long time to change. And, you know, Apple does send powerful social signals because of the mass of users. But uh, I don't know who said it. Those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Sony used to send a powerful signal about technology, innovation, and divine and design. Divine. Divine <laughs> design. Remember? I mean, yeah. back in the Walkman days, what Sony, you know, you thought Sony, Steve Jobs thought Sony was it. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I'm going to make a prediction right now. You've heard this first here on Old Media Unplugged. Apple is going to launch some type of entertainment division, and it's not going to be before too long. Mm-hmm. I believe it. What does that mean? Because it looks like that's where they're going. What do you mean, an entertainment division? Who knows? Maybe they're going to make films. I, I don't know where they're going. Just like Sony Entertainment, you're going to see an Apple mm -hmm. Entertainment. Interesting. You know? But, okay, back to Apple Music. So the reviews are not kind. What, what did Business Insider call the launch one of their sloppiest debuts? It was sloppy. And right. And, Gad <laughs> and Gadget, they called it a mishmash. <laughs> I, I, if you don't know what they're doing, if you don't see it through the lens of, a, of, of just a pragmatic business decision, then you're missing the whole thing. All they're trying to do is get back some of the control of the content and counter the slowdown in music downloads. Yeah, it's really, I mean, that's fundamentally, it's about countering, it, it's about addressing the, business, the decline in uh, music downloads and the reduction in the, uh, the, the, their diminished position in the music industry as a result, right? That, that's it. I mean, you, you, listen, you study this, you know, this is what's going on. It's a Me Too product. And, yes. And now, this is the interesting thing that they're doing, though, because they, because they have a huge platform. They're going to try to leverage people the way people behave. I mean, their perceptions and their existing behavior. They've got hundreds of millions of people who already own and use iPhones, iPads, iTunes, uh, iWatches are coming. Mm -hmm. And once those people download iOS 9, mm -hmm. the Apple Music icon is going to be staring them right in the face on the front page. 
Okay. So you t- you take that. Now remember, I know that this is a paid service, but you take that. You give people a lengthy trial period. Three months. Right. You the fact that they have eight hundred million credit cards on file in iTunes, where you don't have to fill out any information. All you do is click that thing. Mm-hmm. So who knows when it comes to how people are going to behave in the future. Maybe they start using it and then a message comes up that says, do you want to continue to use it and pay $9.99? And that all the information's in the phone. Maybe people, maybe some people will hit that button. I've got a feeling they're going to. Well, here's, here's the thing. First of all, on the 800 million figure, there's, that's mentioned in this Chris Taylor article. Here's what he says about that. And I think he's right. The 800 million figure is a pretty weak indicator. It includes anyone who's ever synced an iPhone or bought a single 99-cent song from Apple in the last 12 years. They're not hanging around on iTunes eagerly waiting for streaming to kick in. Those who are interested in such things have had years in which to try out one of the dozens of competitors in this space, competitors who didn't feel the need to throw kitchen (laughs) kitchen sinks at their products. (laughs) And then the other thing I'll mention is also visible on their iPhones for uh, a few years now is the iTunes um, icon, which is also baked in. And one thing that's been around now for three years, I think it is, is iTunes Radio. And that uh, has appealed to the same 800 million presumed consumers. And they have never, ever released usage figures for iTunes Radio. And everything I hear from all the people on the outside looking in is that it's because the usage was Below expectation. Okay. All right. Listen, that's I, not a good sign. I, I know. Listen, I, I'm just I'm just looking at numbers. I you know I, I look at these numbers and I say, okay, Pandora has I don't know 70 million monthly listeners and 15 million paid that that pay the subscription fee for the premium mm-hmm. s- service. Then I think, yeah, but there are 700 million iPhone users. Yeah. Can I get 15 million paid subscribers out of well, that? Well, that's the, the, in business school, they used to call that the, the 1% fallacy. Right. That you take any large market, <laughs> if we only get 1%, we have a going concern, right? But unfortunately, well, that's why sometimes we don't. trying to build an audience, right? <laughs> so that everybody wants to get 1% of some big number. <laughs> One thing I will say that I really like about your, your take on this is that your point that they used to be about, and I, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, Apple used to be a company that was about revolutionary uh, devices, changing the world, as you put it. And now they're a fashion company. And there's nothing more symbolic of that than the difference between the iPhone, an absolutely revolu- revolutionary device when it was new, and a watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about this. It's hard to believe it's from the same company. Yeah. <laughs> One last point I want to make, and that's on uh, Beats One. Uh, a lot of people are puzzled about the fact that Apple will put out a uh, what, what amounts to a radio station uh, worldwide, 24-7, etc., but still a streaming radio station. And what was interesting to me, I found this reference, and because my belief is that that's primarily a Barker channel, a channel, a, a, basically a service designed to both humanize what is inherently an inhuman service dominated by algorithms and also to draw attention to the content that Apple wants you to be interested in because of the relationships they have with their labels, which is better done with humans than with algorithms. And this is what I found that was interesting, and it doesn't have to do with uh, Apple, it has to do with Amazon. Listen to this. Could Amazon be looking to expand into daily live video shows? That appears to be the case, according to a job listing from the internet retailer. The posting on Amazon.com advertised for an experienced television producer who could help run the new initiative, cast as a way to entice consumers to shop more on Amazon, particularly video-loving millennials. So I thought about it, that well, 
they're creating their own video Barker channel. Why wouldn't Apple create an audio Barker channel? Right. Listen, people are looking at uh, how much did how much did Jurassic this Jurassic Park movie pull in? I didn't even get the figure. This I know it's huge though worldwide. Over over a, a half a billion dollars. Wow. People are looking at entertainment, video games, movies, podcast, whatever it is. I I don't think anyone's doing anything but sitting around consuming content. (laughs) (laughs) Or not consuming content. (laughs) Or not consuming content. (laughs) All right. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. The new marketing muscle of your very favorite movie stars. Tom, this is from a piece in The Wrap. The title is Why Jennifer Lawrence, David Ayer, who's a director, and James Gunn, another director, are Hollywood's new social media weapons. Hmm. The idea here is pretty simple. Remember the days when studios used to fret about having the right domain name for the new movie and, God forbid, a squatter should sit on, you know, uh, meninblack3.com? Those days are long gone because nowadays, it turns out, um, all the heat is with the movie stars, and the movie stars are the ones to trickle out the first looks and the early photos and the initial videos and, um, and all that kind of uh, uh, you know early exposure stuff. Um, and um, the the quote in the piece is why this makes sense is not just because obviously they have the audiences the stars right. do, but because quote they seem more authentic to film fans than if the same content came from larger studio accounts. And I had to puzzle on that for a moment because, I mean, you know, anybody who knows anything about movie stars realizes there's very little authentic to them at all. Just ask Rock Hudson. And I thought maybe the word should be impactful rather than authentic because what movie stars can do is rally their fans to action, right? That's it. Does it really have anything more to do with authenticity, though? It has nothing to do with authenticity. Look, this this is a big, you know, duh. So people look to their favorite actors to help discover movies they may be interested in, just as they do with authors, right? As right. soon as an author That's comes right. out with a new book, people clamor to find out what is it, what's it about? Let me see what it is. Give me a sneak peek. They've always done that. Yeah, I've never Social- signed up. I've never signed up for the mailing list at Doubleday. <laughs> no, exactly. That, see, that's the whole point. What does the Doubleday brand mean? It means nothing mm-hmm. because you don't know what you're getting. The author tells you, what are you getting now? So it's a proxy for 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 actually for value or the or the or the type of movie you're getting, but it doesn't always work out as a good proxy. I mean, if you've seen this movie Serena, this 1920s period piece with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, then you know it doesn't always work that way. Mm-hmm. But in general, if I hear from let's say Russell Crowe or Daniel Day Lewis about their new movie project, mm-hmm. I'm going to get turned on to check out that movie, right? Mm-hmm. And that's great for the for the movie stars because that gives them ever more leverage. And if you remember some of the uh, the leaks from the Sony thing late last year included some interchanges about how much certain movie stars wanted to tweet about their movies. Well, I'm listen, I'm sure, and I don't know if they're being paid for this, but I'm sure that they're going to want a piece of the action if they're going to do the marketing. I assure you this is part of the deal. Whether they're being is specifically paid for specifically this, I doubt. However, you can bet that this is part of the 360-degree promotional deal that goes into being a star in a major motion picture. You can assume that to be so. Yeah. Listen, it just this makes perfect sense, right? Social media makes it, it, makes it easy. It's cheap. 
they're teasing us again, right. which is smart marketing. It gives us a sense, you know, a taste, kind of like those those Asian restaurants, you know, at the at the uh, airport food courts. It's people are walking around with little meat on toothpicks. Mm-hmm. They try to give us a little taste of the thing so that we want more. That's what they're doing. Right. Well, what do you think are the um, the consequences for brands for this? Because I thought about this and I thought, well, but a movie a movie studio is to a movie, well, a movie star versus a movie studio versus a movie. What are the brand analogy there? I mean, why why aren't why don't we have Uncle Ben tweeting? Why isn't the Pillsbury <laughs> Doughboy tweeting? You know, why is it that I've, I've got to go to the Pillsbury Twitter account if I'm so inclined to get their tweets? I mean, why, well, why doesn't this you, translate? <laughs> well, it's not because of authenticity. It's because, it's because the celebrity is a proxy it, it, for the value that you're going to receive. So if, if Daniel Day-Lewis is, is tweeting about a new movie project, then I'm thinking that movie is going to be good because Daniel Day-Lewis is in that movie. Mm-hmm. Or if I hear if I hear Tiger Woods, you know, tweet uh, that he bought a new uh, brand of golf club that he happens to be sponsoring and he actually uses it, unlike him driving a Buick in a commercial, mm-hmm. that didn't work as a proxy because we know he doesn't drive a Buick, mm-hmm. right? So if it if if the if the character can be a proxy for the brand the value of the brand then it connects but who the hell is uncle ben well he's no (laughs) (laughs) he knows a lot about rice i'm told so to your point this is so interesting because to your point i remember a few weeks ago i saw an ad and it was an ad for george clooney and it was a watch and there was george on a sailboat looking very clooney-ish and he had that watch on his wrist and and i took one look at it and i thought do I want the Apple Watch or do I want George Clooney's watch? Yeah, exactly. I want George Clooney's watch. That's it. That's how that works. That's how, that that identification with the person. It's not authenticity. It's identification. Those are two different things. Mm, good point. All right, Tom, time for rants and raves. What do you have for us this week? Oh, you're making me go again first? All right, jeez, you do this. I think so that you can figure out which one of the ones you have lined up you need to... No, unfortunately, okay. I, have, I have bad discretion and use them all regardless. Okay. All right, here's what I thought. I thought since we were going to rant about Apple, I thought I'd pile on, right? What the hell? We love to knock down the ones we put up on these pedestals. So I'm digging into this new operating system, this iOS 9 that they're coming out with, and... You're going to love this. I discovered it's going to have the ability to track people's sexual activity. <laughs> I swear to you, it's in this health app. Exactly when you had sex, how often, whether or not you use protection. Now, I'm guessing this is self-reported, but you know who the hell knows? Maybe it gets its information from some kind of wearable or something. You know, This is where everything's going. But anyway, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to predict this is going to be a big, big feature <laughs> to listen to the young and to the old because I'm thinking about this and I see the young, right? What they're going to do is lie. They're going to load the app with made-up sexual interests and conquest, <laughs> and then they're going to try to use that data to impress the opposite sex. What they'll do is they'll inadvertently leave their iPhone on the bar with some flashing <laughs> bar chart on it or something. Now, the more mature among us, especially... Married men and those in long-term monogamous relationships, 
they're going to do the opposite. They're going to strategically forget to add occasions of sex so that they can display a line graph that's trending down. Then they'll pull up comparison charts of similar demographics, and then they'll do an overlay to prove with data that they're being deprived and that maybe their health is even suffering from it. So I'm guessing a big deal for this thing. All right. Clearly, you should have told me you were going to do that in advance, so I could have let you go last. That's awesome. Oh, well, I've got a couple. I've got I, neither, nothing's going to compare to that. But two rants in a ray. First of all, uh, uh, rant number one. Um, I am on the board of the Broadcast Film Critics Association, and we produce, among other things, a show called the Critics' Choice TV Awards that airs every year on A and E. And um, it just completed recently, and it had this past. This was the first uh, showing on A and E, and the premiere uh, showing attracted 522,000 viewers, which I'm told mm -hmm. is something less than what's normally gotten for a repeat episode of whatever show happens to be on A and E. So, not the greatest uh, performance in the world. Now, put that beside the what I'm sure is a PR-driven piece um, on the A&E Network's social media guru and performance and how fabulous it was. And here's a quote from the article. It says, The awards, which aired Sunday, had 1.8 million Twitter users talking about the event with a total of 8.5 million impressions, according to Nielsen. Now, again, 522,000 total viewers... <laughs> what? So, what I'm puzzled about here is how, in one context, a set of metrics can be laudatory, can be praiseworthy, can be fabulous, and in another context, the outcome that was supposed to be intended by those metrics can be disappointing. And I, and I recognize, of course, that, you know, advertising and outcomes don't align one-to-one, -one, right? that there's some John Wanamaker math going on here. But still, <laughs> right. I, I I'm just get so puzzled because how can the social media person be a superstar from all this presumed interaction and impressions and yet the show not get ratings? Uh, you, you're thinking too deeply about this. <laughs> None of this makes any sense. You just happen to bump into something that, you know, you study. I mean, I study stuff all the time and look at it and go, this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> Seriously, but I don't. I never think it's worthy of a rant. I figure, well, no, everybody else knows it doesn't make sense too. All right, well, there you go. You dispensed with that one pretty quick. All right, here's number two. This is rant number two. Caitlyn Jenner. This is not uh -oh. about the person, okay? Because that's even older news than Apple. If you're going to get on the what's old and what's new rant here, um, my issue is with the name Caitlyn. And I thought about that. I thought, how many 65 year old women do you know named Caitlyn? So I went back and I looked, and it turns out that in the year that Bruce Jenner was born, there were, quote, fewer than five baby girls born in that year named Caitlin. <laughs> what the hell are you... You mean he should have gone back to when he was born to find the right name? You've got to have an age-appropriate name. You need an age-appropriate everything else. You need an age-appropriate hairdo. <laughs> Why not an age-appropriate name? All right, I can't wait. What name should he have given? I don't so? know what name he should have given, but I'll tell you, the popularity of Caitlin peaked, Caitlin peaked in '98. And last year, it looked like the name was headed for a decline in popularity steady through 2037. Well, that motivated me to look up more names, specifically yours and mine, Tom, uh -oh. because I wanted to know <laughs> how appropriate are these names. So here's what I found. The name Mark last peaked in popularity in the U.S. in 1960. 
it will decline as a baby name every year from now to <laughs> through 2031, which means, you know, I am basically the Ezra of the future, okay? You are talking to, <laughs> you know. Now, Tom last peaked in 1959. Oh, Jesus. It will next peak as a baby name in 2038. <laughs> How do they know when it's going to peak again? Listen, you're asking... <laughs> After your rant on my previous rant, you're asking me a question like that? How am I supposed to know? Well, again, you're throwing out this, these numbers and data that make no sense. This is, well, um, that's proof right there. That's proof right there. And here, in fact, is um, talk about throwing out numbers and data that make no sense. Here's my rave. The article is from the Washington Post, and it's called How and Why a Journalist Tricked News Outlets into Thinking Chocolate Makes You Thin. Oh, boy, I read about this. Did you read about this? Isn't this oh, awesome? I love this. So um, I'll summarize. So there was a journal that published a study, and the study was picked up by all kinds of jubilant uh, media almost instantaneously with things like scientists say eating chocolate can help you lose weight, the Irish examiner. Excellent news, chocolate can help you lose weight, Huffington Post <laughs> India. Dieting, don't forget the chocolate, says modern healthcare. And as the article says, it was unbelievable news and reporters shouldn't have believed it. Basically, it was done by a, it was all created by a, uh, an enterprising reporter who faked his name and actually did conduct a study, by the way. He conducted a study with 15 people. <laughs> wow. And, and about a million variables. And it turns out when you conduct a very small study with a very large number of variables, you can prove almost anything a tiny little bit. And in fact, what he proved is that I think that the, uh, the, the members in the chocolate group of his test group lost 0.1% more of their body fat than those on the diets alone. And that's what was reported to reporters. 0.1%. <laughs> so, again, um, the point of this, this was all done in order to fool people, in order to say that you know, even health reporters are not looking skeptically at these things. Um, and as the article says, if you're reporting on a scientific study, you need to actually look at the paper. You need to talk to a source who has real scientific expertise. They don't have time for that. <laughs> It'll, they'll end up being old media like us. That's it. Old media unplugged. <laughs> That's old media unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Biz Bloggers, and Net News Check. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker, circa 1959, and Mark <laughs> at Mark Ramsey Media, circa 1960. <laughs> Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For the one and only Tom Asecker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening. 